0: Truly a great joy to be here, and uh, Matt, your words um, greatly humble me, and I mean that, and I'm thankful for our growing friendship and partnership in the gospel. Um, heard a lot of good gossip about this church before I even met Matt, and uh, I love the fact that our friendship, our partnership, actually began at a gathering of other pastors, um, under Scott Petty's watch at Grace, and uh, I was given the privilege on that particular day to not talk about ministry chops, but about my weakness. Go figure, a bunch of pastors getting together to talk about their weakness. I find that very refreshing because it makes the gospel all the more real, all the more necessary. And I'm so thankful that in walking with your senior pastor, lead pastor, or whatever moniker you wear, that when we walk through Green Hills Mall together, Matt's not primarily asking questions about ministry chops and pragmatics. He just really wants to know how can the gospel go deeper into his heart, into his marriage, into his parenting, and his love for you as a church. I'm just so thankful for that, brother. Thank you. Neither of us have time to waste on lesser matters. Well, I get to travel a lot these days. Being on staff at West End Community Church, Carter has written a marvelous job description for me. I have no reports in either direction. Uh, No longer a senior pastor. I live with 70% less stress, so I get to walk with senior pastors. And part of the commission of my calling as teacher in residence at West End is to recognize and to make myself available for young emerging church planters and gospel leaders. And in those travels, I'm out of town a good bit. My wife, Darlene, gets to travel with me a good bit. We do some couples ministry together. She's a trauma counselor. She's been... Walking most recently in our city with women, women coming out of human trafficking, and uh, she's a marvelous woman. We will have our forty-eighth anniversary next Cinco de Mayo, which is amazing. Proof that the gospel is true, that we are still walking together and better friends than ever. But in those travels, many times churches will say to me, Scotty, would you mind jumping into our current study? We are going through 1 Samuel, or we're going through Revelation, or we're going through like this past Sunday, I was in Naples, Florida, and the church was studying 1 Corinthians. And they'll say, Would you like to jump in? And I really enjoy doing that because it always stretches me. The easiest thing would be just to pull out two or three favorite texts and go with those. When I am assigned a text, it stretches me. In fact, we won't go reading it now, but last week I showed up in Summit Church in Naples, Florida, and I was uh, assigned 1 Corinthians chapter 6. With If you do the math, know anything about that chapter, it's a complex chapter. Well, Unfortunately, Matt neither gave me permission to do that nor asked me to. And I say thank you, Matt, because having listened to Matt's last two sermons as you are working through Galatians, I don't want to mess with Galatians. I'm ready for you to preach next week so I get to hear that. Uh, I've been so nurtured and fed by listening to Matt's preaching. But as he and I were talking about this morning, what we landed on was... Scotty, pick a text that maybe will reinforce where we have been walking, where we are currently marinating in Galatians. In the last two weeks, as you know, there's been uh, this emerging theme in a love man's language of desperation and deliverance as the gospel is becoming more and more Central to the whole of that letter and now as Paul in Galatians is beginning to rub in the radical implications of what we mean when we say the gospel is good news. Last week in particular, Matt did a marvelous job of talking about the spirit of sonship about how for Paul now he is making much of this theme that one of the central gifts to us through the person and work of Jesus is that we come to know God as Abba Father. That we are adopted, not metaphorically, but metonymically, actually. We really do become sons and daughters of the living God. And it's not just a metaphor Because God has placed his spirit into our heart, the very spirit that gave us new life, that gave us the gift of acknowledging the depth of our need, to see our despair, our anguish that we might really find ourselves not looking for a second chance, but for the second Adam, Jesus himself. We did not need moral reform, we needed resurrection. And that deliverance, as again, you heard so beautifully these last two weeks, and the previous weeks as well, but I've just been still swimming in the last two weeks. It centers on this incredible picture of our being adopted. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, Pick up another passage, 1 John chapter 3. You see it mentioned in your bulletin. If you have uh, a a Bible to turn to, if you have something electronic that can lock your gaze on 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we're simply going to say a big hearty amen and hallelujah to what we were hearing last week in Galatians 4. What do we mean when we say... By the sovereign mercies and grace of our God, we have a new family. We have a secure inheritance. We are in a whole new relationship. Well, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John and these three epistles, and I also believe who wrote the book of Revelation, right in the middle of this first of his three epistles, has this incredible doxological deposit of sweetness and goodness. Let me read the text. And then let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. We're going to see in this text three two-word phrases that might be helpful for you just to kind of wrap your heart around. We're going to consider astonishing love, liberating relationship, and transforming hope. Astonishing love, astonishing love, liberating relationship, and transforming hope. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for His Word. I'm I'm reading from the NIV, by the way, just to let you know, in case you have ESV or some other translation. John writes, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Let me pray again briefly. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift to me that Matt has become and what, Lord, even in this room, many friends from past seasons of life and story through these 40 years, Lord, have uh, have just appeared before me yet again. Lord, I just thank you for the joy in these four decades of seeing how Faithful you are, and how much bigger and sweeter the gospel has become to me since I moved to the city in August of seventy-nine. Father, be with us now. Protect these whom you cherish and those that would listen later from anything I would preach or teach that does not find its anchor squarely in the Word of God. Lord, may anything I would suggest, even as attractive as it might sound, if it's not truth, Lord, let it be quickly forgotten. But, Lord, where we will, by your Spirit's enablement, come to understand more fully what these three verses are saying about you, Father, and about you, Lord Jesus, and about you, O God, the Holy Spirit. May these things be wrapped around our heart, deeply ingrained into our bones, and may they serve the purposes of the story that one day we'll see this entire earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of our God. Or to this end, we pray, with great thankfulness and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love this text because it really shows us how the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ were able theologians, but more than that, they were doxicologists. There's something about this text, there's something about when we go through Galatians that you see that, that Paul and John in this text are so alive, And even anticipating later, and maybe we'll have time to reference this, if this letter of John was written somewhere in the 60s, then perhaps 25 years later, as we encounter the same apostle in his early 80s writing the book of Revelation, he does not ramp down the astonishment. In fact, if anything, the older John gets, the more he is staggered, astonished, overwhelmed at this love that he bids us ponder today. And just look the way this text begins and under this first of three affirmations of astonishing love. I use the word astonishing because in verse 1, the very Greek word that very quite lamely most translations begin with, see. It's not any mere seeing. There is, again, this phenomenal command that just bids us lock our gaze onto something. Uh, Best translated as I actually read it, behold, get a hold of this, set your gaze on this. Now even before we go further, I want to ask you, this summer or sometime recently, uh, where do you connect existentially with a memory of being somewhere and looking at something that it just would not have been fulfilling if you'd been there by yourself. Or maybe you were by yourself, and it was so frustrating. Is it Janine? Where are you, Janine? Okay. All right. When you talked about the Bali sunsets, you know immediately what I'm talking about. I haven't been there, and I haven't seen your Instagram. But you know, there are certain places in the world, certain moments... When you just sense every cell in your being, you, you sense your, your sensory data. It's almost sensory overload. I remember for me one of those moments, and you think of yours, was when my son Scott graduated from Christ Press Academy for a, a graduation trip. We did a fly-in, fly-fishing trip up on the parallel of Bamp Canada. And we had found through a Canadian pastor friend this amazing glacier lake, called Glacier Lake. Go figure. And uh, the only way you could get there was either pontoon plane in and land and go into this fish camp where all you would be catching is eastern brook trout, or you could hike 18 miles. We chose the pontoon plane. (laughs) You were so far out in desolation That, you know, the sky just lit up. It's just one of those places you've been perhaps at some time where the stars seemed like you could reach out and grab them. Well, we were fishing on this beautiful, beautiful lake in this region. And there were only like, I think uh, there was only one other couple while we were there fishing. And these eastern brook trout, they kind of remind you their their flesh is kind of the color of salmon. It's just as sweet and they're magnificent. And God hand-painted them. Well, one night, the director of this camp came and knocked on our frame tent house and says, you guys have got to come out. And we went outside and the sky looked like a green lava lamp. The northern lights absolutely lit up the sky. And being a child of the 60s, I had that stimulation in other ways. But in that moment, it was real. It was not imagination. It was actually the most overwhelming, and I'm so glad I could say to Scott, Scott, can you believe this? Now, unfortunately, it was before little cell phones, so I couldn't do, you know, a selfie of me in the northern lights or something or even take a picture that I could show you. But, you know, something might be lost on that. Now, now, wherefore are you? I want to ask you that. How long ago was that when you were last truly, viscerally astonished That's an important consideration because even as Matt this morning thanked God for the crispness of the sky and a 35 degree morning, there's just something about being in God's creation and we hear his majesty being declared. What John in this text wants us to understand is, indeed, all of creation, not just those special moments of seeing the northern lights, but in coming to understand the outs of God's grace, coming to understand the true northern lights that the gospel are... The true sunrise and sunsets on the great beaches and the horizon and the shoreline of our soul. This is what we are called to. And not with a diminishing effect, but growing. Janine used a word earlier, I loved it. The way she talked about hope, it just creates, as C.S. Lewis said, a redemptive discontent. You know you're made for more than even what the northern lights offer in this life. And this is what John is saying. Again, let's enter into his own excitement, his own clarity of declaring who Jesus is and what's happened to us because of it. See, ponder, behold, set your gaze on what great love the Father has lavished on us. Once again, in the Greek, the the word great there, you know, you would not see this in a normal translation, but the actual word is from what planet, from what country. It's kind of a shorthand. John saying, you know, nothing can compare with this. Consider, set your gaze on, get out of your bed, wake up, old sleepy one, and come and ponder the alien wonder of a great love that has not been dribbled on us or drizzled on us, but has been lavished upon us. See, we Presbyterians are too much into sprinkling y'all were into complete all in immersion you understand lavishness you understand that completely not in part but the whole well well john is no mere enthusiast see this is rooted in truth and if these things are not true they're not beautiful right but they are beautiful because they are true consider how great the love is the father has lavish on us, and now he gives us the clear affirmation of what he's talking about when he says the love of God. The love of God that has done what? That we should be called children of God. In other words, John's thinking in this context, as Paul is in Galatians, something dramatic has taken place. We needed an incredible deliverance because indeed the depth of our desperation was Such that we needed rescue, but look what we've been rescued from, but look what we've been rescued unto. That we should be called children of God. And it's important to see that in the Bible, the concept of calling has more in common with a subpoena than a mere invitation. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been subpoenaed. That could be embarrassing. But you know, you don't just Possibly consider a subpoena. You realize this has got some authority. I, I am, I am under authority, expected to be at a certain place. And is it not absolutely awesome that God has subpoenaed us into sonship? We've been called. Everybody in this room that already has tasted this inheritance, you know how much in common you have with Lazarus. You ever walk through, again, just very honestly, the narrative of Lazarus when he's dead? Jesus goes to his tomb and starts talking to a dead man. Lazarus, come forth. He's four days stinking dead. How can Lazarus hear? That's just the point. In the speaking is the reality and the provision when God calls us to newness of life, when God calls us to be daughters of His delight and sons of His wonder, He doesn't just invite us. There is the enabling. There is the taking on of all the depths of the desperation that is ours. What a beautiful picture. John goes on, to affirm not just that we have been called children of God, but look at that second part there in verse 1. And that is what we are. Again, I just love the clarity that John's working with here. He wants believers to know what's already true about them. And I think you'd agree with me, if you are someone that self-identifies as a follower of Jesus, how would you not agree with his statement the Christian life is just increasingly coming alive to what we already have. You know, we, 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 have, we are Cinderella with amnesia. We forget whose we are and who we are. We suffer from doxological dementia. We can remember everybody's sins all around us, but we forget the gospel. That's why Martin Luther said we need to hear the gospel of God's grace every day because we forget it every day, and we never hear it deep enough. See, finally one day when Christ does appear, which is a part of our text, you know, probably the first cry we're going to hear throughout the every nation body of Christ is, it really was true after all. we finally free from all of our unbelief. Again, that's a part of what... Matt and I, the other pastors in your church and the pastors I've gotten to walk with these 40 years I've been ordained, an honest pastor is going to say, sometimes I stand up to preach and it just does not seem as real to me as I want it to be to them. Pray for the Spirit of God to make it sweet and real. That prayer runs throughout Scripture. I love the honesty of Scripture. If you're even struggling this morning, even calling into question the love of God for you, you are so welcome here. This is not cheerleading competition. The goal of the service is not to fire you up. It might be to quiet us enough that we can be astonished at what's true and to look at the various ways we wander from it. We are made for wonder, but prone to wander. Well, John goes on. He makes this interesting statement that we don't want to jump over. Notice the last part of verse 1. He says, along with, and that is what we are, i.e., we really, really are what Matt was preaching about last week through the words of Paul. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We have been given the spirit of sonship. The spirit is crying within us, Abba, Father. But in this statement in 1 John 3.1, this is the reason why the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Now let me quickly say, I think John's emphasis throughout his gospel is, those who know the love of Jesus are going to show the love of Jesus. So I don't think John is saying here, the reason why the world doesn't know us is because we're obnoxious. I hope that's not the case. Have you ever met an obnoxious Christian? Don't raise your hand. You know, I, you know, my confession would be, yeah, I've been that guy. I remember early as a believer wanting to fix my parents wanting to go back to the church I grew up in and and show how angry I was at everybody for not telling me about grace. You know what? That's not what it means for Jesus to say to us, by this the world will know that you are my disciples. By the way, I have love for you. So love one another. And and I pray increasingly that Trinity Church will be considered a bunch of oddballs because of the way you love each other. Would you not agree with me? We're in an hour in our own culture when kindness is the exception rather than the rule. Some of you saw recently, uh, uh, what's her name, Ellen DeGeneres? Is that the way I say her name right? Ellen? All right. The, the actress who happened to be seen in a baseball game with George Bush, and she got all kind of grief because of conflicting worldviews to which she said, I have all kind of people that are friends I disagree with. And she has been slammed for showing Kindness. Now, irrespective of the politics of that conversation or the issues wrapped around that one relationship, it is remarkable, tragically remarkable that kindness is the exception rather than the rule. But we know the scriptures teach it is God's kindness that does what? Leads us to repentance. Your harshness didn't help your neighbors. And... And to be kind is not mean to be naive about the real issues. Once again, I, I, I'm, this is not flattery. He said yesterday as we we're on the retreat, I've got so many things I'm learning from Matt. And, and, and Matt, as you know, has a beautiful mind and has a beautiful mouth and has a tender heart that is refreshing me to be in that place again and again and again, Matt, corresponding with this. You want to love well because you've been well loved. Ten years from now, if I'm still on this earth, I hope we are still walking that mall and saying, what, Rosemary Miller, 95 years old, calls me from London to say, Scotty, pray for me right now. I don't love Jesus as much. He is worthy of my love. Why would we not want to grow older in that, right? We see it in John now. We see it in the Revelation. Well, let's go on further in this text. Astonishing love. It's meant to take our breath away. Back to Janine. I'm so glad she quoted C.S. Lewis. His reflections on the Psalms C.S. Lewis had some wonderful things said about the Psalms. He says, in the book of Psalms, we realize that this isn't a private experience, it is corporate. And what should be happening every time we gather to worship the triune God is we say to one another, can you believe this? Like, friends, just what we sang this morning, if it's true, it's not a game changer, it's an everything changer. Before the throne, we have an advocate with God, Jesus God has not just befriended us, he's adopted us. It's true. We say to one another, look, let us see, let us run together. Take me with you. I am forgetting. I feel disconnected. Again, the culture of a church would be marked by love and kindness and awe. Takes us to two of three. Liberating relationship. John just keeps being redemptively redundant with the language. Dear friends in the Greek. uh, Beloved. Beloved, it's not a word people below the Mason-Dixon line use to affirm their southerness. It's a profound theological statement. It's an actual declaration. John writes, beloved, now we are children of God. And his point is this, with all the legal rights, all the legal rights, we, we, we may be living with, with a lack of awareness, what that means, anybody from North or South Dakota here, raise your hand. God bless you. got a few Dakotans. I don't know if this has ever happened to any of your friends or families, but in the last 30 years or so, there's been some unique stories in the Dakotas. If you happen to have an old family piece of property that has gas rights... You know, there's been different stories of someone from the seismological world knocking on a door saying, oh, uh, excuse me, I see your little gas station here where you sell RC Colas and Moon Pies. We would like to give you $100,000 a month just to have the gas rights from your property. They were there all along. The the gas was there. But, you know, a, a landowner Eking out a common lifestyle, not knowing that legally theirs was untapped resources of natural gas. Brothers and sisters, this is what we have in the Lord Jesus. We, we, we are heirs of the new heavens and new earth, not just to get to live there, but we are heirs of the coming world in which everything sad will be untrue and all things will be new and the entire family of God from every single race, tribe, tongue, people, group will be there and every one of your relationships will be perfect. And yet I still whine about a parking place. Let's go on. I'm going to be sensitive to our time. I wish we could be here to two. But consider what John is instinctively doing which Paul does in terms of affirming, liberating relationships. So he says, now we are children of God. And in his mind and heart, as in Paul's, there's a contrast. And Matt mentioned some of the contrast last week. So we are, we are children of God right now with all the legal rights that need to be tapped into and to understood and to be shared for the benefit of our neighbors and the nations. But what are we not? If we are children, what are we not? Where well, we are not slaves. We are not slaves. If, if, see, that's what's, that's a contrast in the Scripture. Uh, if you're a son and daughter of God, you, you, and certain enslavements have been broken. And you don't want to go back to those. What are some of the things the Bible says that we have been set free from and are progressively being set free from? We're not slaves to false gospels. Chapter one of Galatians, Paul just lowers the boom and says, You know, how is it that some of you who once saw Jesus clearly crucified now are going back to a gospel that's not a gospel at all? And he goes on to say, If an angel of God or if I should preach to a gospel other than the one that you've heard, may God's judgment come. See, some of you were saved from a false gospel. Maybe some of you have a story like mine. There's never been a day in my life I did not assume I was a Christian. I was raised in North Carolina. That's where this accent comes from. Went to church as long as I can remember, but I went to church long before I went to Christ. And the very night I was converted, I thought I was a Christian and I had to be rescued from presumption about what the gospel was. Some of you were raised in a culture not like mine. See, my church wasn't liberal or conservative. It was just Southern. We just went to church. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you were raised under the harshness of performancism, and that's a part of what's been impacting the men and women of Galatia. These Judaizers came down and began to corrupt or add on to the gospel, saying to Gentile converts, if you're a man, you need to be circumcised and start obeying the law of Moses, to which Paul goes ballistic. Do you know the gospel you've been saved from is empty, so you'll be less likely to go back to it? But what else? Again, I'm just repeating what, what um, Matt preached on from Galatians last week. We, we're, always, we're also we're not, we're not slaves to idols of the heart. We're not slaves to broken cisterns. We're not slaves to false love. See, three different prophets use a different image to say the same thing. Ezekiel talked about how God frees us from idols of the heart. Something in my heart that's claimed the adoration, attention, and allegiance in the place of Jesus. Jeremiah referred to it as broken cisterns, uh, declaring the fact that we're all thirsty and hungry. And, and the tragedy is, we, we, uh, in, in turning from the gospel or never turning to the gospel, uh, which is the fountain of living water and life, we create cisterns with our own hands that can't hold water. And what an irony, what a tragedy that we would trust in anything other than the free grace of God to us through the costly work of Jesus. Jesus. Hosea used the image of false loves because, as image bearers of God, one of the primary idols we will always be sucker punched by is people idolatry. Is it Josh that's teaching the class on fear of God or fear of man? Who's teaching that Sunday school class? Did I see that bulletin? Is that starting next week or is that going on? Oh, just wrapped up. I hope you I hope you went to that one or get the tapes. Or sorry, we don't have tapes. Get the MP three. In other words, you see, you have a deep, deep longing for intimacy. It's why you foolishly think marriage was to give you what Jesus is not giving you. We have a deep, deep, deep longing for shame-free intimacy. And our people idolatries just spill out all over the map. Again, I'm so thankful I got to hear Janine. See, my spiritual father, Jack Miller, that came alive to the gospel, he wrote a curriculum precisely because missionaries were bored and boring and kept sabotaging their work because they could not get along, expecting even their team members to be salvation for them. can't wait to hear you preach. Cease your biting and devouring one another or you will be destroyed by one another. Christian cannibalism Paul takes on in Galatians. I may be on the front row for that one. We're not slaves. We're daughters and sons. We're not orphans. Jesus said to this John, I will not leave you as orphans. To the disciples as he prepares for the cross and his resurrection and ascension, I will not leave you as orphans. Okay, let me think here. Legally, I have, what, 10 more minutes? What have I got? We're good? 10? Okay, good. All right, All right. I just want to, want to be a good steward here. All right. Let me tell you about orphans just a little bit. I'd ask, Matt if we had a screen in the room, and if we had had a screen in the room, you know what, I would immediately put up, and you can use your imagination now, because you know this painting, some of you, if you don't, go back and ponder it. You know, when I come upon this theme of not being orphans, I think of the life of the great Dutch painter Rembrandt and the the painting that Rembrandt painted that really captures Jesus' declaration of what it means to be sons and daughters of the living God through through his work as the ultimate son, the only begotten son. But if you remember Rembrandt's painting, and this is the last painting he created before he died, and it really represented his own coming home to the father's love. He was raised as a Dutch Calvinist, was, had tremendous affluence in life, had deep romance, the tragedy of loss when his wife died. But Rembrandt The older he got, the more he suffered. And hallelujah, it led him to the point of painting this painting that was not even finished completely, or it was just finished before he died because it was still in his studio uh, when his funeral was being celebrated. But Rembrandt painted Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal sons, but he put in the picture more than two faces. You see the self-righteous older brother that lives oblivious to the love of the father, You see, the brokenness of the younger son that's been living, running from the love of the father and thought he could really make life happen in a faraway country, but also in the painting, there are at least three, if not more, other figures. And Rembrandt was basically saying, where are you living today in relationship to this kind of father? And on that father, if you've never seen this, please go check it out. Rembrandt painted two different hands on the back of that young son, pressed into his chest. There's a strong hand of a father, and there is a feminine hand of softness. And Rembrandt was saying, finally, not just in my head, but in every cell of my being, I have been pressed in by the tenderness and the strength of God. And before he died... He knew a love that he painted in so many different ways. Now, where are you in that picture? Where are you in this story? Would you have more in common right now in this culture of contempt and vitriol with the self-righteous older brother, again, living oblivious to this kind of love? You can acknowledge it theologically because you're defending it against legalists, but it's not touching your heart. Or are you someone who assumes if Trinity really knew your story, past and present, and if you were really exposed, you'd look a lot more like this younger son still in a faraway country, and you're assuming if they knew me, they would give me the left foot of fellowship so quick out of here. Please hear the gospel say to you today, nobody in this room is beyond the reach of God's grace, and no one is beyond the need of God's grace. And this is exactly what John is saying. And it's why he finishes with his third affirmation. And again, themes that will be reinforced and brought forth with a lot more skill than I do today as Matt continues in Galatians. Notice where the text finishes in second part of verse 2 and then through verse 3. So we've considered the call to astonishing love and the call that goes on every single day. We We have, you know, all of us are nothing more than... Then men and women in our Hawaii shirts with a little bucket and flip-flops and a teaspoon standing before the alps of God's grace. We're just beginners. We're all neophytes in wonder. And, 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 and enjoy that and explore it. And understand that central to that is the relationship you want more than any other. To know that God is not just going to be letting you in heaven one day. But that God right now delights in you as much as he delights in Jesus. That if you have a heart to hear the spirit in your soul. You would hear the God who was serenading you through the truth and beauty of the gospel. That if you know and even now would own the desperation that's in your life. You would hear this same God, your Father, say, I am committed to quiet you with my love in view of the day when we will be fully and finally alive, which is recorded in these words. Right now we are sons and daughters of the living God, And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know. This is not the certainty of the modern man. Arrogance. This is a knowing in the heart that does not replace but transforms tears and welcomes suffering as a part of the story. Highlighting the longing we have of the day when the tear wiping hand of God will finally not just wipe away the tears but redeem the pain behind the tears. This God says to us through John we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. For we, will, we shall see Him as He is. And that's, dear friends, what the world of philosophy is called the beatific vision. You cannot see a movie, a poem. You cannot hear a lament. You cannot hear some melody written by a believer or non-believer that does not scream this truth. You are made by beauty for beauty. It's inescapable. What's not inescapable is the way we sabotage good longings. But you want what John's saying here. We will see him. We will see Jesus. And in seeing him, we will be made like him. Now try to wrap your mind around that one and your heart around that. What the gospel is saying is, he who began a good work in us is not just going to complete it. Thank God he is. But here's what that good work is. We, everybody in union with Jesus, one day will be as lovely as Jesus and as loving as Jesus. You know, that absolutely overwhelms me way more than the Aurora Borealis or the nine times I've been to Switzerland. And I know I want that. But like you, I think, Lord, surely not me. Surely that's reserved for Matt and Mother Teresa, but not me. My brothers and sisters, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. Your desperation is so far off the charts. And thank God you don't know how desperate you are, but thank God you know you're desperate because in your desperation, He gives us Jesus. All who have this hope... In him, meaning in Jesus, not in church, not in culture, not in religion, not in anything. All who have this hope in the fact that Jesus, who did come, is coming back. And he will complete making all things new. Everyone that has this hope and everything attendant to that hope that John talks about later as an octogenarian in the book of Revelation, what happens? They purify themselves even as he is pure. That's just a glorious picture of what man's be preaching about in Galatians 5 in terms of the work of the Spirit within us. In terms of gospel-driven sanctification. See, here's what John is saying, which Paul says over and over and over. The more you are absolutely certain that God has made his peace with you, you didn't make peace with God. You could never make peace with God. God has made his peace with you. You've been shalomed. And if you know that, and you know that it's not empty, it's not just peace making, it's affection fulfilling. That will free you and me more than anything else, more than anything else in Trinity Church, to be a congregation that sees the beauty of holiness and not just a bunch of rules to obey or disobey. See, the law demands a perfection that the gospel alone provides. And as we grow in this hope, you know what's going to happen, Trinity Church? You guys are going to be not a predictable church, but a safe church because you're going to own how you are just beginning to understand the change that persists, the unbelief that grabs your heart, the oppressions that are still there, the parts of your story that... That the gospel doesn't just claim in terms of the repentable parts, but also the repairable parts, and you're going to grow, and you're going to smell like grace, whether you're here or whether you're in Edshill. You're going to smell like grace because you're groaning in grace, and you're growing in grace, and you'll see Jesus more clearly together, and your childlike wonder will be the most inviting things to your kids, to one another, spouses. Why not? why not with me right now pray as the worship team comes that God would show us not just the green sky of the roar Borealis up in Banff, Canada but the wonders of his love the wonders of his love the wonders of his love that right now are being lavished on us in Jesus hallelujah What a savior hallelujah What a salvation let's pray Father thank you that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you take slaves to sin and death. You take orphans of all varieties, and you make them your sons and daughters. Lord, I, I pray for those in this room who have found trust plausible at Trinity Church, who are just beginning, perhaps, to realize their desperation, that it's not for different parents, it's not for different stories, it's not for a different body, it's not for a second chance. It's for Jesus alone. Lord, would you subpoena them to life, even in the singing of this final song or two? For the rest of us, Lord, show us how we live like orphans. We don't really believe we have a father, or it's just become cliche again. Lord, vitally. Powerfully restore to us the joy of your salvation in us. To this end, I pray with great hope, great thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for that day again. Janine, just her story today, Lord, just so encouraged me, Lord. Uh, Lord, you are gathering your family from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. And you use donkeys and floating axe heads and people like us in our weakness be conduits of resurrection, beauty, and wonder. Thank you, Lord. May this be increasingly the story you tell in and through Trinity Church, I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.